Hello everyone. Welcome back to our last episode of Into Miyazaki's World. This is Betty, and hi, I'm Avery. Yes, and because this is our very last episode talking about Miyazaki's movie, so I'm going to keep it very short so that we can save time to our like reflection at the end of everything we did so far in the episode, in the podcast in general. And today we're going to discuss the very first movie of Miyazaki's Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. And spoiler, spoiler disclaimer, giving in advance for you all who plan to watch the movie, we will spoil many details of the movie. So if you don't mind and want to listen, I would just like jump right into it and give it to Avery. Yeah, so we're gonna talk about the Castle of Cagliostro, which um, I actually didn't write down when it came out. Um, did you write that down, Betty? I think it's 1979, I'm pretty sure. 1979. It's oh. my mom's birth year. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1979. Um, so yeah, for this episode, it will be a little different. Um, as she said, we're going to discuss the movie, and then we're actually going to move into some information about Miyazaki's early life and his career and the founding of Studio Ghibli, so we're very excited for that. And then we'll just kind of do, yeah, like an overview reflection and discuss our rankings of all the movies we've watched so far. But if you can't get enough of us, don't worry, we will be back next school year. Uh, we'll be going beyond Miyazaki's world to look at some more Ghibli films. But for... Sorry, <laughs> I got distracted. Um, but for our film of focus today, uh, like, like Betty said, it came out in 1979. And so I didn't really write a formal synopsis for this film. It's kind of very simple. Um, the character Lupin the Third. Uh, is a very popular manga character. The best way I could explain his fran- this franchise of Lupin the Third to an American audience is it's kind of like Batman. Different directors, you know, take a turn to create a movie on Lupin the Third in their own style. So um, he's this spy guy, and he basically just does a lot of heist. Is that the right word, maybe? Yeah, heist yeah. capers for money. Um, so Miyazaki's film follows him and his companion um, as he actually takes on a more honorable heist uh, where he ends up actually not fixating on the money but saving a princess. So it's kind of a it's a bit of an interesting tale. We kind of have this weird mix of like um, 60s like spy mystery Scooby-Doo vibes and then like also fairy tale because <laughs> we do have a princess and she's trapped in a tower. But yeah, interesting film. Um where should we start for this one? Yeah. So uh, I think of may- maybe we just like, stick to our tradition talking about the world building. Because for me, this um, movie is just very different from the style that Miyazaki just followed throughout um, the timeline he worked at Studio Ghibli and beyond. The art style is just very giving me um, a 70s, 90s vibe, obviously, but not in Japan. More about in Western culture and Oh, this time I watch it in dub and I love it so much because it's give me about like American funny cartoons. So I love it so much. And yeah, there's a lot of like um, smoking scenes. And for me, I think it's very rare in Miyazaki's movie because the one I can recall is just like House Moon Castle of the Witch of the Ways. She smoked at home. And in The Wind Rises. I was going to say, yeah, in The Wind yeah. Rises and in Porco Rosso. I think because yeah. those are also, those are not just ordinary films. Those are historical 
films, they have a historical context, so the smoking makes sense. But yeah, in more of his movies that take place in either fantastical settings or modern day settings, you don't see smoking as much, especially the ones that are geared more towards children. Yeah. Yeah, because I would say The Wind Rises, Porco Rosso are not as geared towards children, but this one clearly is, and it actually has a lot of violence and uh, scenes like smoking compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, My Neighbor Totoro, which is very much for kids as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's just so weird. And the use of language is different, too. And I swear a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I like you compared it to just kind of American cartoons during this time. Because it does kind of just have that, like, goofy slapstick comedy vibe. Most of the funny scenes is them getting hurt. Which I feel like is a very, like, American Tom and Jerry thing. <laughs> like, you're just <laughs> laughing at the characters being dumb and hurting themselves. Um, and then just also the crazy situations they get themselves into. So, yeah, I definitely see that. And I also listen to it in dub. I couldn't even find a sub. I don't know about you. Yeah, I cannot either. I watch it on YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, I rented it on YouTube as well. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's our recommendation. If you want to watch it, Um, it's like, I think, $3 to rent on YouTube for mm-hmm. four weeks or something. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what else do you notice about award building? Do you have any... So um, this is more to do with just Miyazaki's artistry in general, but mm-hmm. um, I feel like it's cool to see how far he's come just as a creative director and an artist in general. Um, the beginning credit scene, uh, the art, the color, the setting, it was just so cool and it was very vibrant and stylized. And going back along with the fact that Lupin is this, you know, source material that multiple art directors and artists have used, it's kind of cool to see that Miyazaki tries to put his own spin on it in a certain way to showcase his uniqueness um, as a director. Um, I, he, he, has a, he does a good job at making it feel like it's his own. I feel especially through the way he illustrates the castle, because to me, that's just some very uh, Ghibli Miyazaki illustration right there. It's the detail and the rendering of the castle and all of the nature and the courtyard and the flowers. Um, they only get me started on that chandelier. That was <laughs> the chandelier in the castle is so detailed. Yeah, I like that part, too. I feel like the beauty of nature is to illustrate very well in this movie. And that's part that why I love this movie so much, I think. And besides of that, there's one more detail that I noticed in the movie that makes it very Miyazaki is the way um, he illustrates the characters. Because yeah. even though it's borrowed from um, another artist and other people work, it still somehow reflects like, the very characteristic that Miyazaki made for his characters. So, yeah, I feel it's very unique, especially yeah. for Clarice. I, I think absolutely. Um, Yeah, Clarice looks a lot like Nausicaa. Me and Betty were talking about that uh, before we sat down to discuss. Uh, Her haircut is the same, the same colored hair, and she kind of has a similar attitude at certain points. But at the same time, she's very much a damsel in distress trope. And so to me, that's where I see less of Miyazaki's influence and more of just the source material and st- uh, Miyazaki trying to stay true to it because uh, we know that Miyazaki's very well known for having strong female protagonists and Clarice in here she's she's okay I I, I kind of see what elements he did put into her that I do think comes from him uh, she has a whole conversation with I believe he's a gardener uh, I don't know if you remember their conversation but um, it was talking about I think I'm trying to remember it was 
Oh, um, our mutual love of nature created a strong bond between us. Her and the gardener, that's how they became friends, because nature bonded them. I was like, wow, that was a very Miyazaki statement. And it just kind of came out of nowhere. It had nothing to do with the plot. So to me, that was just Miyazaki trying to incorporate his own little, like, I like nature, just, like, moment mm-hmm. into it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can see what, why you're talking about that. But I um, have a little defense for my girl, Clarice. But we will talk about it later. Okay. So we discuss yeah. about the characters more. So um, for the word building, do you have any other thing you want to say? Um, I, I did write just about how the whole idea of this clash between kind of like this spy vibe and then also this medieval vibe. Because, you know, it's like a castle and she's a princess and her wedding dress looks very medieval to me. Um, yeah, it's like modern spies and they have the technology to sedate her. Like it just once again reminds me of Castle in the Sky or Nazca, just all these movies we've seen lately where they really intertwine themes of different time periods, different cultures, different genres. Uh Because Nausicaa was like this sci-fi, fantasy, apocalyptic hybrid. And then Castle in the Sky was, you know, kind of felt like early 20th century, but it was also futuristic. And so here you get another weird combination of like, kind of like this medieval European feel, but then also like Japanese spies also going on. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just interesting. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, just reminding me of both Castle in the Sky and Nausicaa. Especially the whole idea of the prophecy. Um, Count Cagliostro, he's like, you know, it's our destiny to be wed or whatever, and that their family's divided. That was very castle in the sky to me. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It's absolutely what I saw. Uh, based on my notes here as well, I mentioned um, the scenes where they do the wedding because it looks so weird. It reminds me of some, like, dark theme, like witchcraft for some reason. Because the way <laughs> yeah. people dressed... It's so weird. Not not a yeah. not a bride and a broom, but just like the people who arrange it. I don't know, but their the costume is very weird, like some witch. Are you talking about ca- the count's outfit? Yeah, he, yeah, he does look weird. He has like a masquerade mask on. Yeah. Um, it's kind of Phantom of the Opera uh-huh, ish. Yeah. I, I I don't know. It's it's such a weird like genre blend to me. This doesn't make as much sense as the way he blends genres in other movies. But you do kind of see like how he grows as an artist and where these ideas came from. He's obviously always someone that kind of is multi multifaceted. Is that a word? I don't know. <laughs> like in the sense of wanting to combine different elements and different genres. Uh, and like Clar- Clarice being a princess locked in the tower and asleep. Like, that is so, like, princess fairy tale trope. Mm-hmm. However, it's a modern spin because she's been sedated. She's not under a magic spell. She's under um, a strong sedative. Uh, and it's, you know, and then she's also locked up in this tower guarded by an evil villain. But instead of, like, a dragon or something, it's just some man that's committing financial fraud or whatever is going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Counterfeit money. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's very interesting because it's talking more about the devil inside of you, not like a physical one. So that's why I'm, I, I don't know. I tried to search up for like what style is that for the wedding, but yeah. it didn't pop up. But it just gave me a vibe of like the gothic style. Very dark. Gothic, very, yeah, yeah. Very mysterious. But yeah. It, it could make sense. It's kind of like, you know, Tudor England. Do you know yeah. about that? Yeah, it's just like, it's 
got a royal theme going on. We're in a castle, but it's like dark royals and it's like conspiracies. Yeah. Um, and then it connects it on an international level, which that I think that's the interesting part is the globalization in the movie because real Tudor like monarch time that was not we we were not there yet as a society to where we were engaging in like count like where counterfeit money would even be a problem like mm-hmm. that's a modern society problem so it's like these modern problems but this like old contextual vibe you know what I mean yeah it's weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a weird combination in this movie so yeah I think that's what I got so far most of them just remind me or I found it parallel very well with Castle in the Sky but mostly it's about um, the power and politics that is portrayed in the movie so yeah, yeah I could see that a lot also um, our villain he's a very classic villain and we talked in Castle in the Sky about how what was his name? What was M- the Muska. Name? Muska. Muska was like our first uh, real villain where he's not a morally great character. Like Lady Eboshi, I was talking recently to my roommate about just that. I think Lady Eboshi was such a good villain because she wasn't pure evil. You know, you could see and sympathize with her in certain ways and you could appreciate certain aspects of her, but she still made bad decisions. Whereas uh, Lupin the Third, our villain, as well as Castle in the Sky, that villain, they're just evil (laughs) like there's no redeeming qualities they're just evil Mm -hmm. yeah they don't have legit um motives yeah what they want they just want power yeah (laughs) just so random yeah pretty much (laughs) also he's already making tons of money so it's like why do you also need access to like this ancient treasure or whatever which we find out just ends up being an ancient roman city that's underwater Mm -hmm. he already has enough power he really doesn't need it he's fine yeah, it just made me wonder, like, does he know about that? Like, that he's... Yeah, because they, they seemed surprised that that was the treasure when yeah, they discovered it at the end. Because maybe, like, Castle in the Sky, they just think that the treasure, like, the physical treasures, like, goals and stuff, will be up here if yeah. the ring just joined. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it's just more about the legacy. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think also in that one, Muska, he knew that there was riches up there, but he was more concerned with just having a monopoly on the technology of Laputa because he wanted to take over the world. Like, he was crazy on a whole nother level. Whereas Count Calgary, oh my gosh, Calgiostro, this name (laughs) is going to get me during this episode. But uh, his motives are even more unclear than Muska because Muska, we just know that he wanted power and he wanted to take over the world. Whereas the Count here, it's like, what what does he want? He just wants to be rich, I guess. But he's already rich. Yeah, he already had power <laughs> yeah. because of his family. So like... it's like, what else does he want? I think he was just wanted more power, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't have any more about a war spirit. Because, yeah, I, I feel like this movie doesn't have a lot of things for me to say for some reason. But, yeah, it's just more about compare how... Um, Miyazaki art style just changed over time so yeah my themes are like all over the place I didn't even put world building I just have um, elements of Miyazaki Miyazaki's artistry so like areas where I saw future references like how Clarice's design looks like Nausicaa Um, and then we have so many classic trope reference and then source material references then I wrote a little bit about Lupin's character did you yeah okay we can talk about that yeah okay so um as we all know, Lupin is not, like, made by Miyazaki, but I feel like the way um, the character is built and, like, his emotion or, like, yeah, emotional expression he made gave a lot of vibe of, like, male characters that Miyazaki made. 
yeah, like very gentleman and stuff. But yeah, to me, okay, maybe this will be a hot opinion. I didn't like him. I thought he was annoying and rude. <laughs>、um, I think he's like a bad Porco Rosso, to be honest,、mm-hmm. because he's like Porco Rosso in the sense of. You know he's a part of a time period, so he's and he has these misogynistic views, and both of them are womanizers. But I think the difference is is that Porco, by the end of the film, is really trying to be a better person, and we have these main characters that are female、uh, in Porco Rosso that really prove to him that he needs to stop、um, underestimating women. Uh, and we see that through Theo and Gina, and so we know he cares for them and he appreciates them. Whereas Lupin here, he just—I don't know—he just to me, he's just a womanizer. I don't really see him gaining any level of respect for women throughout the film. It's not really touched on. He's constantly just kind of like a little flirt.、Um, I don't know. Maybe my opinion's too harsh. <laughs> When did you think? Yeah, I think it makes sense. But for me, just not like. Not that bad because he doesn't have any、um, behavior that to like humiliate or、yeah. make the women feel bad about their role. It just like I don't know. It just doesn't have any motivation for feminism to happen, like in Porco、yeah. Rosso. Yeah, so, I I yeah. agree with that. That is kind of a downside to this film is、yeah. that it's misogynistic. But then there's also no kind of challenge against that status quo, like we get in Porco Rosso. I think the reason I really don't like him because you're right, he didn't really display outwardly,、uh, I don't know, like misogynistic actions. It was just more of his words.、Mm-hmm. Um, I I think his words honestly bothered me more than his actions. Maybe I don't know. Um, because yeah, he does end up saving her, but his motives for saving her are kind of unclear. It seems more related to him trying to find the treasure, especially at first, and then all of a sudden he's like, "No, it's actually because I just want to save her." And it's like, "Well, that's not what you were saying five minutes ago in the film." But okay.、Um, <laughs> and then I really hate this quote. Whenever、uh, they're at, I don't know if they were like at a bar or restaurant, and the waitress is like, "Oh, the count has a bad reputation as a womanizer," and he says, "So do、yeah. I." And he starts、yeah. being a little weirdo. I-, I just thought he was weird, and I was writing very. Just very harsh language about him in my nose. I was like, "Why is he such a weirdo? Why is his Riz working on Clarice? Because his his game is awful." I don't. I'm like, girl, don't fall for it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very hard to talk about this character because for me, I'm confused too. I don't know what like what make him to.、Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, what make him to um trying to save. Clarice, it just because of the treasure, like you said, or what happening. But the more I watch it, I think it's more about the gratitude he has for her because for she saved, her. Yeah, yeah, she saved him once. But it's just unclear. So it's more, yeah, I could see、yeah. that. But then that would make it more about an oath, which once again shows that he doesn't really. It it has nothing really to do with her. Just the fact that she happened to save him when she was nine. <laughs> and let's let's talk about that age difference for a moment. Like ten years,、yeah. you know, may not seem that bad when you're both adults, but when you met when one of the p- people r- persons were nine, um, little weird, little weird. Um, giving once again Porco Rosso, of、uh, Theo and Porco's <laughs> relationship was very weird.、Yeah. Um. <laughs> We had a whole discussion about that and like the Lolita trope, which I, I, you know, I don't know how Japanese that trope gets because Lolita, like the actual trope that we're referencing, comes from American film. 
culture, I believe. So I, I don't know, but just just questionable. <laughs> questionable I, I, age gaps. Yeah, I have no idea about that part too. The age, the age gap, just something very weird in the older movie. Because I know the culture sometimes is weird because um of the ancient culture where you have you you have to marry like somebody at the very early age in mm-hmm. Asia culture. But yeah, it just it's just weird when we have some more than um mindset applied to this movie that make their yeah. their, their, their relationship just like weird. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I I don't know. It's like I feel like you can even see this in American westerns, like cowboy movies. Like it's this little damsel in distress kind of situation, and maybe this older, usually disgruntled figure saves her, and then it's like a little puppy that just wants to follow him around. Mm-hmm. But I think <laughs> I I'm tired I'm tired of that trope to be quite honest, because yeah. I don't think it's. I just don't think it's necessary anymore. And I think that's why I'm glad that Miyazaki and his other films, he explores more feministic themes. Yeah, I'm glad of that too. And yeah, as I say, I don't know. I make a note here, like he make their relationship clear. But the more you said and the more I thought about what I watch, it's not as clear as like I thought. Because I think his action when um, Clarice she's i don't know what she want to do but she want to try to kiss him and that part is just so weird and um instead of like taking advantage of her i think Lubin just like being very gentleman when he just kiss her in the forehead even though i don't know what it's for but yeah it's yeah kind of it just daughterly or yeah sibling like it, it just weird yeah. i don't know I, I i think it i will say i appreciate his actions towards her at the end of the film because he goes away <laughs> <laughs> he gets out of her life because honestly I agree with that and he says to her like no go live your life you're young like don't don't stay hung up on me because honestly this girl was trying to throw away everything for him she was like I'll become a thief if I have to <laughs> it, 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 I just to me I was so baffled I was like come on Clarice like you you have a life ahead of you you don't need this man you've just inherited some like ancient Roman city that's cool you know go do something with that uh <laughs> yeah no it's just so weird and it, it gave me a vibe like she doesn't know what love is because in yeah. fact when she met um two of the co-workers of lupin and she just say i love you thank you so much for saving me <laughs> yeah. and the guy was just like so weird like, um, They're like do you know day. what you're saying <laughs> I don't know. You know, it could also be because Cagliostro, um, it's its own sovereign nation. It's fictionalized, obviously, but it, it seems to be set in Italy, was my understanding of it. <laughs> so, I mean, it could also just be a cultural difference because uh, we've actually experienced this in real life where some Asian cultures are a little, just not, not as affectionate as some Western cultures, like Italy specifically, they're pretty affectionate from what I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, they'll greet each other and kiss on both cheeks. So maybe that was her being naive about love, but maybe that was also her just being very affectionate and friendly because of her culture. So I don't know. Yeah. could kind of be both. Maybe. That's interesting. Yo. Yeah. I, yeah, I never know about that. <laughs> I, I, But I see, I do see her being naive. I think I really wish, I don't mean to be so harsh uh, about Clarice's character, but I just wish there was some more dimension. But in general, I would say that most of the characters in this film didn't have the usual dimension and complexity that we're used to seeing in other Miyazaki films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For Clarice, I don't have any harsh comment about her, even though her appearance may be so um, 
week in her trial, but I can feel at some part that she is very brave and independent yeah. as other female characters that Miyazaki built to. Like, <laughs> at the very beginning of the movie, she drove like a crazy oh, yeah. <laughs> person <laughs> just to escape um, the Cagliostro gangs. And she also uh, found um, Cagliostro to save Lupin in the castle. And yeah. Damn. <laughs> Where she was like shielding him with her body. Yeah. yeah that was he sweet. just And she just like being hit by uh, Cagliostro so hard. Like that part. Also <laughs> to go back to her driving habits. <laughs> that reminded me of Sosuke's mom in Ponyo. Because that woman, Lisa, she drove crazy that whole movie. That that reminded me of that. But. Yeah, no, I feel the connection here. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 okay, I agree. I, I do think Clarice has some qualities where it's like, oh, she's showing bravery or uh, she's being independent in whatever way. I think it's more of um her reaction behavior towards uh Lupin, where I'm just kind of like eye roll a little bit. Yeah. But maybe maybe it has a lot to do with her naivete, and she is young, and she saved him when she was little, and so she probably kind of has this like idealized attachment to him you know like the mysterious man that she helped when she was young so it's you know it's probably something like that also we're not entirely clear on like what her childhood has been like what her growing up has been like in general so we're just missing I think that's where the depth that we want is missing like that's where the gaping hole is is that we don't really know how she grew up from that point when she first met Lupin to where she is now we don't really see that development um but I something I did really like that she said is um, when they uncover the Roman city, all this wealth should not belong to one person. It is a treasure for all of mankind. Mm-hmm. That was definitely yeah. that. That reminded me. She reminds me of um, what was her name? Sheeta in Castle in the Sky. That quote reminded me of that a lot because yeah. I feel like Sheeta had the kind of same attitude. She was like, you know, everyone should be able to appreciate this, or no one should. <laughs> that was kind of her attitude as well. I think. Yeah. I like that part too. And yeah, that's that's all I have about um Clarice. And for Lupin, I'm just a little bit confused uh when I go through one of his quote when he said at the time he met uh Clarice when he when she was just like nine years old. Yeah. He just mentioned like if I was going to die, I was glad it was in the presence of such innocence. So I don't know what does he mean when he mentioned that, like, he just, like, being, like, guilty or stuff, or just, like, Mm. reflecting on his childhood that he doesn't have a chance to be innocent like that, or what happened in here? I I was thinking on a very surface level, I just thought he was this disgruntled, like, kind of, he's 19 at this time, I think, right? Um, So he's just kind of, like, this lost youth that has turned to violence and crime obviously and so I kind of thought it had to do with that that he's just been committing a lot of sins he's been doing a lot of bad stuff and so he's just like oh like to think that this innocent child would show me he's kind of been acting like a villain because he's been stealing and doing all these illegal things uh sympathy Mm -hmm. so I kind of thought it had to do with that but I don't know we don't know Lupin's childhood uh, yeah. I think something that is missing for me and Betty here is that I believe um, the Japanese audience that would have been watching this film at the time were already familiar with the source material, I would imagine. 
Because sometimes the way they reference things in characters in the film is like we're supposed to like be in on something like we're already supposed to know them, um, especially like when the inspector pulls up or uh, the woman of Fuji. Yeah. Fujiko, yeah. I th- I'm going to just say Fuji because I think that's what's her nickname in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, they just kind of pop up out of nowhere. No explanation. So it gives this feeling like we're just already supposed to know who they are, you know? Yes, it gave me a vibe like uh, when I first watching Adven- um Avengers series, like oh, I had to yeah. know like, all the characters in like this whole universe yeah. to make connection with that. And I think yeah. Lupin the Third have its all series. Yeah. So maybe yeah, no, that's I why we that have a, a lost reference here. It's I mean especially because it's based off of um a longstanding manga. This is a manga adaptation yeah. into a film, so you would think that a lot of the fans of the film were people that were reading the manga. Um, yeah, he definitely, he's not starting from scratch here. It's, you're supposed to already kind of know what's up and what's going on, who these characters are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to me, I think that's kind of the psychological depth that we're missing is because we're just already expected to know. Yeah, that's right. I think you're right. I'm still confused about the samurai um, <laughs> character. I don't know what he do in the movie. He just showed up and watching everything. <laughs> Which character? The samurai. Oh, yeah. What was his name? Did it's- you write it down? Gomon, I I wrote that, but I don't know how to. Should say we just it. call him Samurai Guy? <laughs> <laughs> just like this, he was cool. <laughs> the one, the one with the samurai sword. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks cool. I don't yeah, know what no. his part or his role in the movie. Okay, but you're so right. It was funny though. Whenever um he was holding the sword and he cut Lupin's burning clothes off of him in like one like swing, and then yeah. he just fell into the car like naked, basically. <laughs> That's funny. It's so funny. Yeah. But back back to Lupin's character. Um, <laughs> I would just say, uh, where where I do see he has redeemable qualities, he just he just really gave me a nasty impression from the beginning. Because I feel like here's the difference is that for me, Porco Rosso going into that film, he is a morally great character and he is misogynistic, a lot like Lupin. So to me, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what's the difference? Why do I like Porco and I don't like Lupin? I think it's because when we're introduced to Porco we know all about his like deep-rooted trauma and so it makes it to where you can sympathize with him even though he's kind of not always a great guy right um but I I feel like because we see that he has these sides to him and he has this trauma he's been dealing with we're more likely to you know feel bad for him and also he does have a character arc and he does get better whereas Lupin like seemingly we don't know anything about if he's gone through trauma what his motivations are he just seems to be stealing because he likes to steal like they never explain why he wants to be a criminal yeah so it makes it hard for me to kind of justify his attitude and he's so big-headed and I, I maybe that's just a personal pet peeve of mine I hate people that are so arrogant um he says things like at least I found a challenge worthy of my talent I was like oh my god get over yourself <laughs> <laughs> or my intuition never fails me. Like, he's just so full of himself. It just made me mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it makes sense. So, yeah. I don't have any, like, good or even bad impression about Lupin. It just, <laughs> he's just there. And um, I made another connection with another character uh, from another anime movie that I watched. It's in the series of uh, Case Close or Detective Conan. There's a character, it's also an international thief, but the motive that he become a thief is very clear that he wants to find um, the treasure of his family that lost somewhere. Oh, yeah. 
So it's very clear that he become like uh, a thief to stole um jewelries. Yeah. And it's very clear. And I think I'm biased because he's handsome though. <laughs> and he yeah. know how to do magic. And Luke, that's why <laughs> I don't know. Lupin's kind of funny looking. Uh we talked about it a little bit. We don't want to be too man. <laughs> or too sorry, what was that even too mean? Sorry yeah. about his appearance, but he's just he's just a little silly looking. I'm gonna just leave it at that. His sideburns are kind of funny looking, <laughs> and his hair in general. I don't know, but I love the design of his comrade, the the one with the hat over his eyes. Like you never see his face, and mm-hmm. he just always has the cig in his mouth. <laughs> I liked his attitude. He was just giving like bounty hunter. See, to me, honestly, tell me why I would have. Enjoyed him being the main character more than Lupin. I just thought Lupin was acting like a silly little kid. Like, he jokes around. He never seems to take anything seriously. And then I I agree with you that maybe if we knew his motive, then I would be able to reconcile something. Yeah, yeah. He just... He's just being a villain for no reason, apparently. Yeah. And then it's like, you can't tell me... You can't set up the story like, okay, he's this guy that has no respect uh, obviously for other people because he's just stealing from businesses. Um, even if he is honorable in some instances, we know that he do- he is a thief for a living, so he's not always the good guy in every situation. And so to start off the movie like that and then try to portray him as someone that's like, oh, I'm going to save this damsel in distress, like it just seems out of character because you didn't really build up his character <laughs> at yeah. all. Um, and he's like, I live for adventure. And what does he say? This is the kind of adventure I've wanted my whole life, which to me, that kind of reminds me, um, Betty and I take a class, uh, which is about like medieval culture and literature, uh, mostly French literature. And it reminds me of this knight, Yvain, who in the beginning of his knightly exploits, like he just goes out seeking adventure for adventure's sake and he has no real heart in it. And to me, that is Lupin. Like he's just doing it just to do it, it feels like. Yeah. It's basically just to show up for me. Yeah, I t- I'm so, such a Lupin hater in this episode. Um, so I'm sorry. I blamed you. <laughs> I'm sorry the people that like Lupin out there. Um, yeah. I just don't like this version of him, at least. Yeah, probably. I wish we have more reference or context. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, talking about Lupin, um, because he's a protagonist in this movie, it just, there's one scene make me a little bit, shocked because i i always believed that like the hero in an older time will be just like immor- immortal like nothing can harm them but at the scene oh, where yeah. Lupin was shot i was like um is it real or just like he's how did he overreact heal f- how did he heal from that in like yeah. three days like that was kind of <laughs> just by eating just by eating Literally, That's no, so weird. I don't know. See, to me, that just kind of brings back the fact that this is very much a children's movie <laughs> and it's children's logic and it's children's comedy. So maybe that's why I sound so bitter. I just didn't enjoy it as much as maybe I wanted to. Um, I mean, I did think some of the jokes were funny. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> like, I enjoyed a joke here, but I, not I, like... <laughs> I like the beginning when whenever they're like, where did you idiots learn how to drive? And then the car falls apart right after that. <laughs> And that's so funny, some part. Yeah. So, um, do you have any other thing to talk about Lupin or Clarice? Or we can move to the main theme of the movie. What is the main theme? <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think it's just about power and politics for some reason. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I wrote down some international 
themes, I guess. Yeah. About, like, the politics going on. Maybe. What did you pick up on? I have no idea. Just very... It's, the movie is very random. I don't know what to talk about. But <laughs> I draw some um, parallel, like, comparisons between um, this movie and Castle in the Sky. Like, the power motives that make the villains try to dominate the world. Yeah. But like we mentioned, Cagliostro doesn't have a clear one. Nobody but... has a motive in this film. Yeah. <laughs> I just wrote here like Cagliostro wanted uh, a polit- yeah, political marriage just to get a ring from Clarice. Question mark. <laughs> wait, okay, wait. You know what I just realized? Okay, there is one character that I genuinely like in this film and I felt he had character development. Who? Do you know who I'm thinking of? I feel like you know. Do you know? Are we on the same brainwave right now? I don't think so. Oh, no, like, inspe- the inspector? <laughs> the inspector, okay. yeah. He's the only one that has any sort of character development and clear motive. So his initial motive is just that he's very dedicated and loyal to his government. And they've sent him to go catch this, you know, international thief that's particularly plaguing Japan, was my understanding. So that is his motive. But then you see the character development when he actually decides to treat Lupin like a person and work together to stop the even bigger villain, which is the Count. To me, I was like, character development. And then at the end, when he's talking to Clarice and he's like, oh, he stole your heart. I'll go get him. (laughs) Like that ending to me was good because it was kind of like, you know, how Batman and the Joker, they're always just going to be chasing each other at the end of the day. Tom and Jerry, they're always going to be chasing each other at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So he still had character development, but he's still going to stick by his guns, which is that he is the law and um, Lupin is breaking the law. So even though he can compromise his values at some point to work together, he's still going to stay true to his mission. So, yeah, I just went on a little spiel, but. No, it's <laughs> he was okay. the one character I like. <laughs> I love the inspector. Um, what his name? Um, I just called him the inspector. <laughs> Nezigata. I don't okay. know. Yeah, <laughs> the inspector. I love him so much. Like at the park where um Fuji just pretend to be the reporter to like yeah, bring the hilarious. media. <laughs> yeah, bring the media to help him discover the par- the fact between the counterfeit money. Yeah, that part. <laughs> and he was being so sarcastic. He was like. <gasps> Look what's down here. Yeah. These make fake money. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. It just like, wow, I was running after Wolven. Look what I found. I yeah, like, he's so, so over the top with it. And then like the government or whatever. I think they were called Interpol, which I, I'm thinking it's like an international like sort of spy organization or something. And they were just they were they were annoyed with him. Yeah, <laughs> Sarcastic so self. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen, um, this might be a reference that you don't know, but uh, do you know what Carmen Sandiego is? Mm-mm. Okay, it's a, it's similar. Uh, it's a old, like, spy kind of situation, um, but it's a woman named Carmen, and it was based on a video game, um, and it would be like, where in the world is <laughs> Carmen Sandiego? Because she would, like, go all over the globe to, like, do these hei- heists and capers and stuff. But I think she was, like, motivated by, uh, I don't know. Her motives were better from what I saw. Lupin seems to just stealing just to steal. So I'm like, I don't know. Carmen Sandiego, is she better than Lupin? I don't know. I'm not trying to start that big of a discourse, but... Question mark here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I don't know. Random (laughs) reference. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And um, where did I left off? Yeah. About Cagliostro. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, 
I agree with you. He doesn't have any clear motive because he already gained his power thanks to his business of counterfeit money, like from generations. Oh yeah. And yeah, it just made me annoy some part when um the evidence of the money just shown up by the inspector. Those people in the police um bodies or whatever it's called. Yeah, that know. conference they have. Yeah. It, they just didn't believe in Cagliostro crime and withdrew um, the inspector from the case because yeah. it just, like, it knows what it is. Half of them were bought, I believe. Like, they were being paid by I him. So, so, like, yeah. corrupt government was definitely kind of a small theme here. Mm-hmm. Or I shouldn't say small. Like, it was it was the underlying theme. They just never, like, go out and say corrupt government. They don't say that words, but it's clear what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, it, it was kind of funny when they were arguing at one point and they were like, the American CIA is behind it. <laughs> yeah, I remember that Yeah, because like growing up watching Western cartoons, I, I don't really remember any cartoons I watched where they would reference like global politics, at least not as outwardedly as they do in this film. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting to think that, like, Japanese children, like, in their cartoons, there would just be, like, regular, like, political references. Because <laughs> I don't remember that in my cartoons as a child. Or if they were there, maybe I just didn't get them. I kind of wonder if Japanese kids, like, they'll see that reference and be like, oh, yeah, those Americans. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. But, yeah, that's something, question mark. There. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I have a quote. It's very random. I don't know why I put it there, but just just say like the word is at his mercy, and after oh, yeah. that he just like giving some historical reference of the ruin of the Bourbon dynasty, and then the Great Depressions. But the year is just weird. But I look up it's oh, in yeah. the period of the Great Depression. The the so. Great Depression reference was actually I, the Great Depression is horrible, like the reality of it. But the reference was funny mm-hmm. because <laughs> and they were basically saying that the count single handedly caused the depression. <laughs> and printing counterfeit money was what caused the depression. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what did they just? I don't know. I just wasn't expecting that. Um, especially because I'm used to Miyazaki's other films with their a lot more historically accurate if they're gonna comment on like global political historical things he tries to be a little more accurate so like in the wind rises we actually see the panic and the bank closures whereas in this one it's entirely fictionalized that this like random man has single-handedly sent the entire world into depression (laughs) i just think that's kind of insane Mm -hmm. to imagine yeah i think they just want to like blow it up so that it show like how powerful or how like um, yeah, powerful. And how the deep? How deep his pockets run? Because he's paying off all these people. Yeah, <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of li- I like that. Uh, the fact that he is a real villain, I think, makes it so funny to discuss because it's just like, how is this one man doing all of that? I know, right? <laughs> and it just passed on by generation. I, I don't know. know what happened. No one noticed. <laughs> well, I mean, apparently Lupin did, but that was like what. 10 years prior, and then yeah. he failed epically, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. those assassins were scary. <laughs> they had, like, just, like, sharp hands. Um, have you seen Hunter Hunter? Yes. Okay, it was giving kill a wall. <laughs> like, it's fingernails yes. are just sharp. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, this is a so goofy crazy. discussion, but this movie was goofy, so I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, for real, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I just make a note here, like, I feel like it represent a dark future that happened oh. with him in the okay. castle in the sky if yeah. Muska took over it. But I don't feel yeah, like yeah. Muska will be like as evil as Cagliostro because he already had a foundation of everything. But Muska, he just 
by himself and know a little yeah. bit about the historical context of his family. So, yeah. It, they're, like, different fonts of evil because Cagliostro, he has this whole thing where he's like, I'm going to unite our divided family. Like, he doesn't actually care about the heritage or the culture. He just wants uh, the treasure, right? And I feel like Muska kind of does a similar thing, but it's just a little... It's in a slightly different context because he also shares, like, the same cultural familial ties with Sheeta, and he's like, we're the two legitimate heirs. So you kind of see that crossover, but I kind of feel like Muska cares a little bit more about the culture than, or his heritage, than Cagliostro does. Or maybe that's just me. Because I did feel like Muska took pride in, like, being the legitimate heir. I feel like Cagliostro just saw it as a means to an end, like, to get the treasure. I think 